Most living creatures sleep, but perhaps no other species beyond humans think about it so much. Okay, maybe not all. Most of us take it for granted. Until that night, we're tossing and turning and our minds won't shut off. That's when we turn to experts like Dr. Michael Grantner, as Life Slices did in part one of our conversation. We had so many questions, we couldn't fit them all in one episode. Dr. Grantner graciously agreed to return. Humans are social animals. Sleep is a highly vulnerable state, and humans generally don't like sleeping alone. When people are not sleeping alone, they tend to feel safer, more secure. They tend to rate their sleep as better quality in general, overall. However, unless the person you're sleeping with is actually just a pillow, it also lives and breathes and has its own agenda. He's back to discuss something about sleep part two. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. We're back today with Dr. Michael Grandner. We couldn't get all the questions in the last time, so I've got a whole bunch more for you today, hopefully on a, on a little bit of a new direction. So I'm going to just start with, to what degree are naps good? They're good to the degree that they're helpful. So that that I know that's a non-answer, but that's like saying... To what degree is a snack good? Snacks can be great. They can a light snack in the middle of the day can help give you an energy boost. They can help help you focus. They can help you prevent overeating later, so because you're not as starved later. They can be great, but sometimes snacks can be unhealthy. You can have you could be taking in all kinds of calories you don't need if you snack if you're grazing and snacking all day. Then then what's you're going to have a problem with your diet if you eat too much too close to mealtime, it'll interfere with your ability to to have a healthy dinner. So it's not the snack that's the problem. It's how you use it. And the same thing with naps. Naps are sleep. Sleep is good. Humans figured out napping thousands of years ago that it's actually a good thing that a nap in the middle of the day can be a great way to improve energy, improve focus, improve memory, cognition, improve physical performance, mental performance, improves metabolism, improves immune function. Naps are great, but they can backfire. If you're napping because you're exhausted, is it's possible that your reason for napping isn't really to promote a benefit, but it's to stave off a negative consequence of having poor sleep at night, in which case you're not fixing the problem by doing so. What are the best practices for naps? Because I've heard various different time lengths and stuff. Yeah. So what you want, ideal time for napping is as close to the middle of the day as possible. You want it to be, you want to be far enough into your day where you have enough sleep pressure to discharge, but not so late into your day that you're interfering with your ability to have enough sleep pressure for bedtime. So middle of the day, earlier in the middle of the day is even better. And you don't want it to be too long. So if you've ever woken up from a nap and felt exhausted, you actually probably napped too long. So when you first fall asleep, you start in a very light sleep stage and you gradually go through light stage one into stage two into stage three, which is the very deep and restorative sleep, you generally hang out there for a little bit until you come back into REM sleep, which is also light sleep. And that's you finish your first cycle of light down into deep up to REM. Then you'll progress again down into deep sleep and back up to REM. And you might be going through that cycle, mostly hanging out between REM sleep and and stage two the rest of the night. But the beginning of the night, you have this progression from light into deep and then back out. If you wake up from that deep sleep stage, you're disoriented, you feel terrible. If you wake up before you drop into that deep sleep stage, you feel better if you're napping. So if you're waking, if you're napping for too long, then 
you may be waking up out of deep sleep, which is very disorienting and uncomfortable. Your body does not like being dragged out of deep sleep. So actually the solution isn't nap longer. The solution is actually usually nap a little shorter because the benefits of the nap, you're counteracting them with the negative effects of dragging yourself out of deep sleep. Now, how long until you get into deep sleep? It depends. Depends on the person. Depends on the time of day. The closer you are to your bedtime, the quicker you're going to drop into it. Middle of the day, it might take you an hour. A little before bedtime might be 10 minutes. It's also how sleep deprived you are. If you're really sleep deprived, you're going to drop into it really fast. If you're a little more well rested, it'll take a little bit longer because you don't have the pressure on. So the, the ideal amount of time for sleep is probably for a nap is probably around 20, 30 minutes because you're probably avoiding deep sleep at that point, but you're getting enough of the benefits. So that, that's what I would call a power nap. A power nap is where the nap begins and ends before you even drop into deep sleep. So you get all the benefits of the nap and you get none of the downsides of being dragged out of deep sleep. Now, if you do enter deep sleep in a nap, it's best to just wait till you're done. Go through a full cycle. Normally at night, that takes about an hour and a half about 90 minutes, anywhere between 80 and 100 minutes is pretty typical. But remember, the amount of time it takes to get into the deep sleep varies by time of day. So if you're taking a nap in the middle of the day, what would be a 90-minute cycle might end up being two hours or longer because of the extra time it took to get into the deep sleep to begin with. I call that a sleep replacement nap because it's kind of like a meal replacement shake where no one's going to look at it and think it's a real meal. No one's being fooled by that. But at the same time, it does the trick in a pinch. It does have real nutrition in it, and it can be a substitute, even if it's not a great substitute. If you're a shift worker, if you were up late last night and you're sleep deprived, a sleep replacement nap where you actually take a few hours out in the middle of the day to nap could be fine, unless it's interfering with your sleep the next night, in which case you're not you're not solving any problems there. So this is more unusual. I wouldn't often recommend a sleep replacement nap unless you're like a shift worker or something. The third, so you have a power nap, you have the sleep replacement naps. And then the third kind of nap is sort of the accidental nap. This is where you're falling asleep. You didn't really mean to or intend to, but you did anyway. Oops, fell asleep. This happens a lot in the evening on the couch uh, when people are watching TV or something. They don't think of that as napping. They think of that as falling asleep a little early or dozing or whatever. But in my world, anything, any sleep that occurs outside of your nighttime main sleep period, usually in a bed in your bedroom kind of routine, anything other than that is is napping. It's it's sort of like if it's not if you're not sitting down to eat your meal, it's a snack. The problem is with nodding off at the couch is what often happens is people are nodding off on the couch and their body wants to go to sleep, but they want to watch the end of the show or whatever. But then they get into bed and can't fall asleep. Sometimes it's because you got that little bit of sleep on the couch. You just had a snack right before dinner and now it upsets your appetite. And so now you don't have the appetite you had. The same thing happens with sleep. It relieves a bunch of it. it it's sort of like your pressure was building in this balloon to get you to sleep. And then you just let a bunch of the air out right away. Even if it's for a few seconds, take a balloon that's full, within a few seconds, a lot of air is gone already. The more pressure there is, the faster it's the air is going to get pushed out. So if you're really sleepy and nodding off on the couch, you're actually getting rid of a lot of sleep pressure before getting into bed. And then that can even create insomnia. Not to mention you miss the end of the TV show. I know. So, so the thing I tell myself when I'm watching TV in the, in the evening or something and I'm feeling tired, the thing I, I remind myself is the show doesn't care whether or not I watch it. It doesn't mind 
it doesn't care. It's not offended. It's not, it's not like I'm watching a kid's performance. If, if I have to leave, it doesn't care. And it will be there tomorrow. Now that we live in the age of everything's recorded, it's not going anywhere. You're not missing out on anything by waiting. Why does the amount and quality of sleep diminish as we age? Is it nature's way of saying you're going to be sleeping long enough soon, so don't <laughs> waste it? <laughs> actually, I would take an alternative approach to that. I actually, so there's this weird paradox that happens with sleep and age, and it's that as we get older, sleep becomes shallower. Uh, you get less deep sleep. If there, if I see a, a 65-year-old in clinic and we look at their sleep stages and they have none of the stage three deep sleep, I'm actually not surprised and that could be normal. So, so sleep lightens. You have more awakenings during the night. The sleep you get is shallower and maybe a little less restorative and maybe a lot less restorative. It, it's, not, it's not the same. That seems to be a product of aging, that biologically sleep is a little shallower. Do we know why that is? It probably reflects a, a few things going on at once. Number one is changes in the brain in terms of sleep-wake regulation, circadian rhythms themselves, and changes in the body in terms of more pain, more comorbidities, more other health issues, all kinds of things, sensitivities, all kinds of things happen. But paradoxically, something else happens with sleep and age that when you tell people, they often don't believe you because, or only because it, it runs counter to what people think, but this has been replicated so many times. Anytime you look at a large sample of a population level sample and you ask for their subjective experience of the degree to which sleep is bothering them in some way. Not how many times did you wake up, but do you have a problem with awakenings? Are awakenings bothering you? Actually, it's the inverse, where the peak is in 18 to 25-year-olds, and it then decreases consistently with age. In women, there's an uptick between 45 and 60, and then it continues to drop again. It's such a reliable downward slope that the first time we, we found this in one of the first large population level sleep quality studies that we ever had the data to perform, we saw that and I didn't believe it. It took me years to publish it because I didn't think it was true until we saw it in other samples too, all around the world. There's data from Europe, data from here, data from Asia. Basically, they show if you ask people, is your sleep fine? The older you are, the more likely you are to say, yeah, it's fine. And so if you're saying, well, how often are you waking up? Number of awakenings goes up with age. How, how tired are you during the day? Actually, that doesn't go up with age once you control for health issues. So if you're older and you're like, oh, I'm more fatigued and it's bothering me, then it might be that there's a solvable medical issue. The reason for that, I think, is that life for a 65-year-old is different for life of a 25-year-old. So when we first had this finding, I went to my old PhD advisor, who was retired at the time and actually had a career studying sleep and aging. So I showed him the data. I met with him. We had, we had dinner. We hung out. And I'm like, look, I've got these data. I don't know what to make sense of it. I always thought that as you get older, you sleep worse. But it looks like when you ask people how they're doing, they say they're sleeping better. There was no group statistically less likely to say, I'm having problems with my sleep than 80-year-olds. And even without even adjusting for, for the health issues, it just made it even stronger when you did. So, so But I thought that was backwards. And so he's, what he said was, he's like, look, now that I'm retired, my schedule is different. I don't have to worry about the same things anymore. You know, I've got the aches and pains. My, my hearing's not as good. Like all these things are happening. And, and you know, 
waking up a couple times in the middle of the night, that's not really a thing that's interfering with my quality of life. I'm fine. I'm able to do what I want to do, and I can't do what I used to do, but for other reasons. And so it's okay. It's fine. And, and I think it, it reflects the idea that sleep exists in context. Why is a 25-year-old who may be getting among the best high, deep quality sleep of their life, the least satisfied with it. And it's probably because they have their pressures to stay up late. They have pressures to wake up early because now they're in the working world. This is the age of like having small children, you know, small children are walking, pooping sleep disorders. And so, so there's all kinds of contextual things going on. The other thing that's really interesting with aging and sleep is that even if sleep is worse when you're older, it seems to matter less. So for example, we know that people who get less sleep are more likely to gain weight, get high blood pressure, become diabetic, etc. Unless you're over 65, in which case the correlation becomes almost non-existent. And at first, again, it was very surprising when we started publishing this and other people started finding the same thing. At first, the thinking was, wait, that that's wrong. Why is that why is it that way? That's backwards. But then we realized, oh wait, that's obvious. If you're 70 years old and you're obese and have high blood pressure, how you've slept for the last couple of weeks is probably not the reason why. But if you're 40 and you're obese and have high blood pressure, what are you doing? What, what are you doing wrong right now? Where you have the idea of accumulated risk factors over time. Now, if we looked at that same 70-year-old and looked at how they were sleeping in their 40s, there might be a stronger correlation. But how they're sleeping now is probably not as important. We see this in blood pressure. We see it in obesity. We see it in cognitive function. So when I get patients walking in the office saying, well, I heard on some some radio show or a podcast that if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to get Alzheimer's disease tomorrow. Is that true? And I'm like, you're 70. I can help you sleep better and feel better. But Alzheimer's disease and dementia are very slow processes. You start laying down tangles and plaques in your 20s, or, or at least amyloid plaques in your 20s and 30s. There's nothing, I'm, there's, it's not about changing stuff now. I can help you feel better. Sleeping poorly now has nothing to, is going to have very little to do with these serious long-term things. It's gonna, it'll help you feel differently. You're, you're not going to suddenly develop Alzheimer's because you had, since you've been older and you have these other health issues, your sleep's kind of fallen apart. That could be a sign that there's other health issues you need to take care of. But if it's not, I wouldn't worry about it as much. There's a great study that came out. It's it's a, came out a long time ago now, but it was in a lab where they sleep deprived people. It was younger people and older people. And I love the study because what it showed was both groups rated their level of impairment about the same after sleep deprivation. But the older group actually slightly overestimated how impaired they actually were. Um, when they were asked how impaired they were, and then they were tested how impaired they were, the older people actually slightly overestimated how impaired they weren't actually quite as bad as they thought they were, where the younger people dramatically underestimated how impaired they were. Actually, younger people seem to be way more sensitive to sleep loss. Young people who are sleep deprived, they're more likely to smoke, to drink, become depressed, have weight management issues, have hormonal issues. 60 plus year olds, when they're a little sleep deprived, not so much. It doesn't really do the same. Does that mean they need less sleep or does it mean they're just more resilient because with age comes resilience and, and coping and all kinds of stuff? Who knows? Is there also that factor? It's like when you drink right. as a young person, you think you can handle more right. than you actually can. 
when you get older, you go, ah, one drink, I'm done. Right. Or that actually, how different is your are you versus your tolerance versus just your perceptions? So yeah, so the, the whole issue of sleep and aging is is actually a little more complicated than people think. It's not and it's not all bad news. So like when I work with women who are undergoing menopause and, and they're not sleeping well, a lot of times I'll say, actually, maybe there's nothing I can do right now because your body's doing its thing. Can't prevent that from happening. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is temporary. All the data suggests that you're going to come out of this and feel way better at the end of it. How effective are supplements? I take a melatonin every night before bed. Is it really effective or am I getting the placebo effect? There's really two categories, three categories of supplements. One is melatonin, which is in a category all in itself. Another are supplements that have sedating properties or calming properties. Those are things like valerian, chamomile, magnesium. Some of these things have some calming, L-theanine, ashwagandha. Like some of these things have some calming property. Most of them don't really do anything to sleep-wake regulation, except if it helps take the edge off in your evening and it helps you fall asleep a little faster, it'll totally work. But if you have an insomnia disorder, it's it's probably not going to help. And that's the thing with supplements. They're not medicine. If they were meant to treat a, a condition, they'd be called medicine and someone would patent them. Can't get a patent on, on them for treating a medical condition because they don't do it. So that's sort of the paradox with these things, where the worse your sleep is, the less likely they are to help you. But like for relatively minor sleep, issues, they could be great. That's what they're for. They're for subclinical, where like, it's sort of like the the difference between a mood booster when you're feeling a little down and it's kind of gray and or you've had a rough week. It's not going to treat major depressive disorder that requires medical intervention. Okay, but they do have some effect. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's just they're often misused because people are using them in place of an actual treatment for a medical condition, which is not what they're for. So that's the sedative one. So they, they, they do have sedative properties. I mean, it's sort of like if, if it's lightly drizzling, fine, hold a newspaper over your head, you'll be fine. But if you're in a torrential downpour, newspaper or not, you're getting wet, it doesn't matter. And supplements are kind of like that. They're like a light newspaper where if it's lightly drizzling, they could make the difference between a good day and a bad day. But if it's a downpour, it's not going to, it's not, it may even make things worse. Have you heard about the Sleepy Girl Mocktail? I don't know what that is. It, it's a big thing on TikTok, ah. and and it's a spoonful of magnesium, okay. seltzer, and tart cherry juice. Yeah. So, I mean, that's fine. Magnesium is just magnesium, and it helps. It's It's got some sensitive properties. And the tart cherry juice is just... Because tart cherries have natural melatonin. Might as well just take a melatonin supplement. It's no different. I'll talk about melatonin in a sec. The second category I want to talk about are actually sleep supplements that actually have nothing to do with sleep, but help sleep anyway. Like things that have antioxidant properties and anti-inflammatory properties. They tend to promote sleep because if they reduce the volume of noise going on in your body at night, it helps you maintain sleep a little better, especially as you get older. Again, it won't treat insomnia. That's not what it's for. You can put earplugs in and it can help you sleep much better. First of all, eye mass and earplugs, best sleep technology probably there is. You can put earplugs in and you won't hear a snoring spouse the same and creaks and noises in the house you won't hear. But like if there's construction outside your window, it's not going to block that out. So that's the thing with supplements. You've got to use them for what they're for. Do they work or not is not a yes or no question. It's for what, in who, 
when. So they do what they do, but are you using it for the thing that it does, or are you trying to use it for a thing it doesn't do? And that takes me to melatonin. People ask me if I recommend melatonin. I say, well, I recommend melatonin for all the things it does and none of the things it doesn't do. So melatonin is very unusual compared to other things people take. First of all, the US is the only country that I know of that sells melatonin over the counter. It is a hormone. One of the only hormones you can just buy over the counter and take. Every other country it's prescription only. Only in the U.S. is it not prescription. It does occur naturally in food, like tart cherries. It's in it's in a bunch of different kinds of foods, usually in not very high amounts. Melatonin is a very old molecule. It's in plants. It's in it's in a lot of species. It tells your body it's nighttime. You secrete it at night naturally. You secrete it when your body thinks it's nighttime. When your body thinks it's evening is coming, it starts secreting it, and then it sort of reaches a higher level when it thinks the sun is down. Stays high, peaks in the middle of the night, then starts dropping right before it thinks sunrise is coming, and then plummets as soon as it sees light in the morning. And then it stays low all day. And that's what it does. It's a nighttime signal. It's not a sleep signal at all. It's a nighttime signal. If you give melatonin to a nocturnal animal, it wakes it up because it's a nighttime signal, not a sleep signal. It's not a sedative in any way. It tells your body it's nighttime. To the degree to which telling your body it's nighttime helps you sleep, it helps you sleep. So for that reason, it's actually a terrible treatment for insomnia. It almost never works for insomnia because your people with insomnia, their body already knows it's nighttime. They still can't sleep. Telling your body it's nighttime, your body's like, yeah, I know. I still can't sleep. Stop reminding me. So that's why it doesn't work for almost any case of insomnia because that's not the issue with insomnia. Is it that your body knows doesn't know it's nighttime? The other thing about melatonin that people don't understand. So A, it's not a sedative. B, dosing in melatonin is not what people think. It's not like the more you take, the more effect it has. If your body knows it's nighttime, more melatonin doesn't make it know it's nighttime more. And so it, it's just a signal. Giving yourself some melatonin in the middle of the day as you're going about your day, it's not going to do very much because your body knows it's not nighttime. Taking it in the later at night when your body already knows it's nighttime doesn't do much either. Taking it in the evening at the inflection point actually is where it's most effective. Or if you want to stay up later, taking it first thing as you wake up in the morning, like so older people who are who are like, oh, I can't stay awake past seven, eight o'clock at night, but I want to take your melatonin as soon as you wake up where it prolongs the nighttime. So the day doesn't start till a little bit later and start shifting you a little bit later. And also the dosing, it's not more is better. Actually, if you take a blind person who has no light perception because of that their rhythms start getting dysregulated. If you want to regularize their rhythms by sending a nighttime signal when you want it to be, and you can't use light, you can use melatonin as a darkness signal. Half a milligram of melatonin is all it takes to fix the rhythms in a blind person. It doesn't take much because you're you're not, this isn't hormone replacement. Your body's producing all, most cases, your body's producing all the melatonin it needs and all the melatonin is going to use. You're already producing it. It's about when. And so if you want to jumpstart the process a little early, you nudge it with a low-dose melatonin. Actually, the data shows you're looking more like four or five hours before bedtime is actually the ideal time. The closer you get to bedtime, the less it works because you're already entering the zone where you're not looking for it anymore because it's already there. So then you have, you have these, a half to three milligrams is almost identical. It's not higher doses have no added benefit. In circadian world, we consider a normal dose of melatonin like a half to one milligram where three is sort of on the high side. Then you see all these supplements that are like three to five. And so we consider that high dose melatonin, which has very little use 
except that if you take it close, a little closer to bedtime, like 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime, it can give you a stronger night, that stronger nighttime signal, especially if you're not producing as much for one reason or another, it can really give you a boost. And so it has a little more of that sedative property closer to bedtime. Taking it in the middle of the night won't help much. For people who are older, so melatonin production decreases sometimes with age. Not always, but sometimes. If you have that, that's a good use for a time release melatonin because you're essentially doing hormone replacement on your melatonin. Not as a drug, but it's as a, as you're basically simulating what your body would have been doing naturally. Then you have these high doses like 10 milligrams, which is from a sleep and circadian perspective, mostly useless. It's mostly an overdose at that point. I don't mean overdose like it'll land you in the hospital, but overdose as in you're taking way more than you need, it's actually going to, you're only creating more side effects at that point. You're more likely to feel more groggy during the day. You're putting flooding so much of it in your system. Your body can't process it fast enough. Daytime is coming. Your cellular rhythms are like, okay, it's daytime, but you've still got all this melatonin free floating in your system. And it's like, you've been here for the last 10 hours. I know you're done. The clocks are all telling me you should go now. It's time. But then it's still in there because your body can't get rid of it fast enough. So then you get these conflicting day and nighttime signals during the day and people feel crummy. But it doesn't always happen. Some people, they don't get that effect. And actually higher doses of melatonin can actually be beneficial as an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant. Like they do have protective qualities. That's actually probably where melatonin evolved. And that's why it's in plants because it, it helps them recover from, from damage. So that's why melatonin is its own thing. It's, it's so different. You mentioned using earplugs to block out noise. What about things like white noise and green noise and all these different apps that make this noise that supposedly helps you get a better night of sleep? Is it true and why? There's two answers to the question. One is there's specific neuroscience data on what's generally called pink noise in terms of those frequencies in a, under laboratory conditions doing something to brainwave activity which in my mind is totally not ready for prime time. It's mostly exploratory. We're not there yet. I'm just going to tell people, don't worry about that. But in terms of basically shushing noise in general, whether whether it's white, brown, or periwinkle noise, whatever color you want to give it, I don't care. It's noise. It's random. It's sound. It's more of a shushing kind of sound of a lot of with randomness. And the idea is what it does is it creates a blanket of sound that absorbs other sounds. If you have something like that, it can help you tune out. If you're sensitive to creaks and cracks and you can't wear earplugs are probably better, but if you can't wear earplugs for one reason or you want something portable, you have a nice shushing sound that absorbs all the little sounds around you. So it might not, you might, it might not disturb your sleep. That's what, that, that's what it'll do. That's what it's for. What about sleeping with pets? I, I can't go to bed at night unless my dog is with me. I know a lot of people have yeah. to have their dog or their cat or their chimpanzee. The thing with pets is same. It's, it's similar to, it's the same as humans sleeping with other humans. There's a good side and a bad side to it. On the good side, humans are social animals. Sleep is a highly vulnerable state, and humans generally don't like sleeping alone. People, When people are not sleeping alone, they tend to feel safer, more secure. They tend to rate their sleep as better quality in general, overall. However, unless you're sleep, unless you're the the person you're sleeping with is actually just a pillow, it also lives and breathes and has its own agenda. 
to the degree to which the one you're sleeping with, whether it's a pet or a child or or a spouse or whatever, they also move around, make noise and do other things. And the degree to which they do is going to make your sleep more shallow. So what you often see is that, for example, sleeping with a partner, you feel better, you feel more safe and secure and have positive feelings but your sleep is more shallow and you wake up more. Pets doubly so because humans have this weird thing where we think it's a good idea to get all our sleep all at once and we try to do that. And imagine if we said, you know what we should do? We should just eat one meal a day and that's the best way to do it. Just eat one meal, get all our food done at once. Who wants to eat at other times? That's a waste. We should. Everyone should just eat at once. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. We don't. We eat scattered across the day. That's also how sleep is supposed to be. Sleep isn't supposed to be all at once. Maybe we have one big meal or a couple big meals and, and other food around the day. That's how most that's how that's how most mammals eat and that's also how most mammals sleep anyone who has a pet knows mammals don't get all their sleep all at once people don't either but at least people try to and so then they 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 could squeeze their sleep and compress it and they don't get up out of bed whereas dogs and cats especially cats because they just do whatever the heck they want they're going to be awake in the middle of the night and especially cats especially because they're they're predators that's when that's hunting nighttime is prime hunting time especially dawn and dusk so right around dawn, you might have either either at night or right around dawn, your animals may have an instinctual desire to start getting up and moving and making some noise. And not necessarily making noise, but doing stuff. They might have an instinct to not be sitting still at some of these times at night. And so that's if your cat's sitting on your face during the night trying to get your attention, like, what are you doing? It's time to wake up. Like you're going to wake up. That's the thing with pets is that like you can't have a conversation with them about it. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. Dogs are different in that they're highly trainable. You can have a conversation. You just might. Yeah, you're not going to get the answers you're looking for. (laughs) Where to whatever degree the pros outweigh the cons, then you make a choice. A big thing that we see in the sleep world right now, which I think is an awesome trend, instead of two people being in a king bed, you get a split king where you have two twin XLs next to each other in a king frame. So one person can move around, the other person can move around, and no one's waking anybody up. Yeah, I was going to ask that because I've seen more articles lately about were we better off when we slept in twin beds than... Yeah, I mean, actually, we probably slept better. But then uh, chances are, if you were sleeping in a twin bed, you were in a 50s TV series. But honestly, it's it's a big trend right now, and it's not one I want to discourage. If anything, you get the best of both worlds. You get to be sleeping next to somebody who you have positive feelings with. But at the same time, every time they roll over, you don't want to use any bad words. You still can't block out snoring sounds. That's what the earplugs or noise machine are for, or, or their CPAP machine if they need it at least the movement and things like actually it actually protects your sleep i want to get to one of your favorite subjects dreams i have heard now this could just be an old wives tale but i've heard that you can't die in your dreams that you'll wake up before that can happen and that if you die in your dreams you're actually dead imagine that you die what's that like if you can imagine that and so first of all i would challenge people to say like if you're imagining you dying and then you actually crossing the threshold and not being alive anymore. If you're actively imagining it, your consciousness is still there. So you didn't actually die. And it's the same thing in dreams. Dreams are your brain speaking to itself in its native language of metaphor and, and ideas and connections and things. And if you die in your dreams, why? You're creating that image. 
but like you don't actually die because if you you would you would wake up because you might wake up because there's no consciousness left to have or you would remain conscious in which case you're not actually dead in your dream and that's not what death is you don't your brain isn't still functioning you're not still thinking and you're not still experiencing things well we don't really know what death actually is right who knows and because we don't know all we have is our own imagination, and our own imagination can only go so far. We can't imagine things we can't imagine. We can't imagine things that are not in our vocabulary. And, and in dreams, we don't feel the need to. We just imagine whatever is closest, and it's kind of like that. And that's the best we got, and we don't care because we're not judging ourselves in our dreams. We, we come up with the best we can, and we run with it. That whole thing, it's sort of like, I don't worry about it. If people have dreams where they die in them, there's nothing medically problematic about that. It's just an idea you're having there's nothing wrong with an idea you're exploring ideas it's a it's it's probably a metaphor of like it's like you were dying well what does that mean and it could mean something different for every person will you die in real life no to whatever degree you, you're experiencing something in a dream you're not going to like become diabetic in real life if you believe you're diabetic in a dream like it doesn't work that way in your dreams, you do think they're real, so you react in the same way as you would. It's more like in your dream, if you tell yourself to run, you will be sending instructions to your legs, but your legs are paralyzed, so you can't actually act out your dream. You might twitch a little bit, but the paralysis takes over and you can't move. And if you get worked up, you want your heart rate to start racing and your breathing to start increasing because you're running from something, And but you won't. Your body is going to say, no, 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 it's a dream. Hold off telling your heart to like, hold off, don't actually do this. And so that's happening in a dream. So it's not like where you, you truly believe it and then you can give yourself an injury because you know in your dream that it's happening, even if it's not. You're not going to give yourself some sort of medical problem or injury. Your body, if that were the case, I mean, given the number of dreams people have every night, how every person dreams and how this stuff shows up in dreams all the time, evolution would have figured out a long time ago a way around that. Can we direct or control our dreams? Yeah, I mean, that's called lucid dreaming. You can train yourself to do it. Some people are better at it than others. Some people are easier to train than others. Essentially, it's extending consciousness sort of where it doesn't belong. And there's limits to it where actually in clinic, I use a version of lucid dreaming all the time when I have patients who have really stressful dreams and nightmares. One of the things I do is I give them exercises that can extend consciousness into sleep. One of the most simple ones being, by the way, as you're falling asleep, Never stop paying attention to what's in your mind as you're crossing that threshold where it trains you to sort of maintain that consciousness in that hypnagogic state as you're falling asleep, for example. And then as soon as you wake up, ask yourself if you were dreaming and what it was and write it down. Like, so you get engaged with it a little more. Don't be so passive about it. And you start noticing it a little more, for example, as one way to do it. But eventually there's different ways to teach people to lucid dream a little bit. And when people have distressing dreams and nightmares, one of the simplest techniques with lucid dreaming you can do is have an eject button where if you're in a dream, you're like, I'm having a dream right now. I don't want to have this dream. Eject and you wake up. You can escape where there is no eject button. You just made one. Like there it is right there. I'm hitting eject. I'm pulling the plug. I'm pulling the cord. Like whatever it is in your dream, it's like you're out. That's a form of lucid dreaming. You're not like creating whole realities or anything. You're just recognizing the dream exists and saying, nope, I'm out. I like and, it. And you're out. That's a level of control you can have. It's a very basic one. But you have people who have very vivid lucid dreams where they have whole characters and conversations and all kinds of things. Some people, like I said, some people get better at it than others, but it's a skill that could be trainable in, in, in a lot of people. The one caution, though, is dreams 
feel real when you're in them, but they're not. So it's like a movie feels real when you're watching it. It feels like you're really there and that world existed. Those were facades of buildings. There was nothing behind it. That was just stagecraft. And that was just camera angles, stagecraft, and lighting. Those things didn't actually happen. And if any of the elements of that were broken, like if you shifted the camera this way, saw it from another angle, you'd see these were just building facades. There's nothing behind there. But the camera was very careful in that it captured everything it needed to. But when you start lucid dreaming and you start metaphorically moving the camera and futzing with things, it starts falling apart because there never was anything underneath the surface. It was it was only there to serve the purpose and tell the story the way it wanted to. And then when you decide disrupt it, it's like a house of cards sometimes that falls apart. So the more you interfere with your dreams, the more likely that they sort of start disintegrating and then you wake up because they fell apart. Does that make sense? Yes, but I don't like that. I don't, <laughs> I don't want them falling apart. I have a couple of questions before we wrap up here. One is you talk about that during sleep, we're virtually paralyzed. So how do yeah. we during REM sleep. So, oh, so how do we explain sleepwalking? Right. Sleepwalking occurs in stage three. It occurs in non-REM sleep. It occurs in that, actually that very deep sleep stage where there's no, the thinking parts of your brain are largely offline. You're not dreaming. There's no, there's almost no mental activity. I mean, there's not none, but there's almost no thinking activity going on. You're not acting out a dream at all. Actually what you're doing during sleepwalking and sleepwalking is under an umbrella of things we call parasomnias. So para meaning like parallel. It's not insomnia where you're like not asleep, but it's not part of sleep either. You're kind of asleep, but you're also kind of not asleep. That's why it's called a parasol. It's parallel to sleep. It's not actually sleep, but it's not separate from, it's not, it's not a departure from it either. It's parallel. It's a parasomnia. So parasomnias include sleepwalking, but also basically when you're doing stuff in non-REM sleep, when there's really no instruction to do anything, you're supposed to just be lying there. You're not really thinking. You're not, you're, you're supposed to be sleeping, but some program gets run to engage in some be behavior. So the code gets run and nothing, nothing suppresses it. It's supposed to be suppressed. So it could be talking, could be walking, could be any, anything you could do when you're awake, you can do as a parasomnia. There's some people who eat. There's, uh, there's even a version where people engage in sexual activity as a form of sleepwalking, where they're not aware it's happening. Your eyes are open when you're sleepwalking. Your eyes are open. You see just fine. You can hear. You can engage with the environment. You can speak. You're just, you're on a kind of automatic where it's sort of like, you know how if you, if you drive to work every day and sometimes there's that period of time where you're like, I actually wasn't aware of driving for the last five minutes, but your eyes were seeing, your ears were hearing. And if someone jumped out in front of the road, you'd slam on the brakes, your reaction time might be slowed, but you were in an altered state of consciousness for a little while. You were safe, you were fine, but you were going on automatic. That's sort of what like sleepwalking is. When you're going on automatic, you're not like having dramatic debates about the nature of reality and thinking very deeply about anything. You're just sort of doop to doop to doop moving along. If you're talking, you're not paying attention to what you're saying. It may or may not mean anything. What people will do is They'll wake up. Sometimes when they're sleepwalking, they'll wake up, they'll go, they'll say, they'll see someone sitting on the couch. They'll say, hey, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired. And then they go and they go to the bathroom and then they get a drink of water and go back to bed. Except the problem with sleepwalking is you're not really all there. So sometimes when you're walking into the living room, you're actually walking into the kitchen. And sometimes when you're going to the bathroom, going to pee in the bathroom, you're actually peeing in the closet. And maybe when you're going through the door back into your room, you accidentally walk out the window. Oh. 
That's the problem. With yeah, sleep that's not good because you're not all there. Same thing with sleep talking. You can have a conversation with someone who's sleep talking. They can hear you. They don't really know what they're saying, and it may make no sense, or maybe it might make a little bit of sense if it didn't require much thought. The other thing to know about sleepwalking is it's common in kids. It has to do with brain development. There's a part of your frontal lobes that suppresses this. This is old code that's running when it shouldn't. We have new code on top of it that shuts it down. But there's a period of brain development in so night terrors. Night terrors are actually a form of sleepwalking. They happen in the first half of the night. Kids can be up and screaming, running around the house. No memory for the event. There's no dream. There's no nightmare. There's nothing or almost nothing. Maybe there's a little bit of I'm scared of the bear or whatever, but there's nothing really serious about it. I've had night terrors. I used to have them a lot more than I do now, but I've had them where I did remember vividly the next day what they were. If it was in the first half of the night, it was more likely to be a night terror. If it was the second half of the night, it might be more likely to be an actual nightmare and REM sleep, which are more which are more commonly remembered. Night terrors are usually seen in smaller kids who also might have sleepwalking. And then usually by adolescence and adulthood, it sort of works its way out. Some people that persists into adulthood or some people who did it a lot as kids, something happens that can trigger it, like a, a lot of stress or sleep deprivation, and then you mess with that system, you can trigger some sleepwalking episodes in adults. But it's actually very unusual to have adults who are sleepwalking who didn't have extensive sleepwalking histories as kids, or it's not because of some medication like Ambien or something. It's not really sleepwalking. It's that you're partially con- you're conscious, but you're unconscious at the same time kind of a deal. And that's a little different. That's my waking life. <laughs> Finally, I know we're warned not to use electronic devices before we go to bed. What is it about electronic devices that interfere with our sleep? And if you like to read before bedtime, are you better off reading a an actual book than an electronic device like a Kindle. There's three reasons why electronics and media and and mobile devices can interfere with sleep. Number one is the light. Light suppresses your natural melatonin anyway. So even if you're secreting melatonin and telling your body it's nighttime, the light will start shutting it down so that you don't get as strong of a nighttime signal, which can make it take longer to fall asleep. Especially if you're on some sort of device where the screen is really close to your face, like a, like a cell phone or a tablet or something. A TV on the other side of the room is different. The light, a lot of that light dissipates into the room. So first is the light. The brighter the light, the, the more of an effect. The second thing is the mental activity. This one may be more important, where you're, you're just really engaged with it mentally. And so your gears are turning. So now you have to wind down from whatever that is. And then that takes more time. And what's worse is if you don't take that time before you get into bed, your brain is going to take time to wind down anyway, except now you're going to be in bed frustrated that you're not sleeping. And so as you're winding down, you're also escalating back up again. Again, with the frustration, and that's where insomnia comes from. The third thing is you lose sense of the passage of time because you're so distracted. The distraction itself is a problem because you're not paying attention to your body's own signals. So if your body's saying, I'm having trouble keeping my eyes open, I'm really tired, I want to lay down, all this stuff. When you're like watching TV or something, you're not really paying attention to those signals. And maybe you could have gone to bed a half an hour ago, you just didn't know it. You weren't paying attention. Whereas when you're reading a book, that's actually the one thing I think doesn't fall under a lot of these problems because it's not generating its own light and it's self-paced. So like if you can't keep your eyes open, a movie will still be going. Social media will still be going. But a book stops when you when your eyes are closed. 
And if you can't focus and think and remember, it doesn't get in. Because it's self-paced in that way, I think reading is probably the best thing to do in that time if you're going to be doing something. Well, I think we kind of exhausted the topic. I'm sure we haven't exhausted the topic, but for now we have. This is the, the final episode of our fourth season, so we'll make it a longer episode than usual. And I'm sure by next season, I'll have more questions for you. Uh, and you know where to find me. Speaking of which, where can people find you for those who don't remember from the first time? My website is just michaelgrandner.com. My last name is very unusual. You Google me. I'm very easy to find. I'm here at the University of Arizona. I, I, I don't really have any books or anything I'm selling. Follow me on social media. I post stuff whenever I can. And if anyone's interested in, in learning more about sleep and circadian science, I sometimes try and post stuff that I think might be relevant for people. Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and we will see you again, I'm sure. Thanks a lot. Take care. My thanks to Dr. Michael Grandner for giving so much waking time to Life Slices. Sleep is great for so much. Giving your body time to work on healing itself, allowing your dreams to work out waking problems or just replay events, and letting that cranial computer reboot. So turn off your electronic devices, put on some soothing music, be sure you have a good solid mattress and the right kind of pillow, and keep your bedroom at a comfortable cool temperature. And read a book the kind with actual pages you turn. Sweet dreams. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios. Mm-hmm.